Welcome to the Get Healthier Podcast with Rena Jadhav, who's on a quest to uncover breakthroughs and cures in living longer, healthier, and happier. Genetic testing, stem cells, rattling, talking to Silicon Valley geniuses and the best doctors in the world about the hottest products and programs to make you live an amazingly joyful life. Are you ready? Now, here's your host, Rena. Hi, everyone. I am excited to have with us today Dr. Eric Grasser, who is the world's foremost expert on the integration of Ayurveda and functional medicine. He founded his integrative medicine and Ayurveda practice in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Nice. He attended Stanford University Dartmouth Medical School and the University of New Mexico Family Practice Residency, as well as the Ayurvedic Institute which is actually by Dr. Ladd, for those of you listening to this podcast who know how amazing Dr. Ladd is, and is a clinical assistant professor at the University of New Mexico. He is board certified in family medicine, trained in functional medicine through the Institute for Functional Medicine, and certified by the Academy of Functional Medicine and Genomics, for which he serves on the advisory board. He hosted the Ayurveda Summit in 2015, which is the largest ever online Ayurveda event he serves on the board of directors of the National Ayurvedic Medical Institution. He also offers online programs and consultations throughout the world. You can lo- learn more about him at drgrasser.com. Dr. Grasser, welcome. Thank you, Rena, for having me. It's my pleasure. Oh, it's our honor. I am so excited to meet a primary care physician that is also trained in functional medicine and integrative medicine and has knowledge of ancient healing traditions like Ayurveda. So first of all, I want to thank you for expanding your horizons and becoming truly holistic. But I have to ask you, you have an amazing pedigree, Stanford Dartmouth. What made you want to go get more knowledge, especially Ayurveda, integrative and functional medicine? Well, that's a great question. I mean, I would have to say that my introduction to uh, holistic healing systems and Eastern philosophical knowledge and Vedic wisdom was through yoga. Like for so many people now in North America, we get introduced to yoga uh, through you know yoga classes that are primarily focused on yoga posturing, what we call asana. Uh, but then after we've gotten in the door, we start to realize what a vast system yoga really is in terms of its philosophy and its teachings. Uh, and spirituality. And then being already in the medical profession, uh, I discovered Ayurveda, a sister science of yoga, and serendipitously found out that one of the greatest schools of Ayurveda in North America was uh, 60 miles from where I was living here in Santa Fe, that being the Ayurvedic Institute in Albuquerque. Uh, So I went down and met Dr. Ladd and really was impressed with uh, him, of course, and the Institute and decided I needed to study uh, Western medicine and work in Western medicine for some years longer just to solidify that skill set. Uh, but once I felt ready, I went ahead and quit my job and went down to Albuquerque uh, and to India and studied with him. Mm-hmm. And then after that, I realized, well, now what do I do? I, I The light's gone on and I cannot just go back to practicing a reductionist form of medicine, uh, which unfortunately is the way Western medicine uh, is in this country. And I had to figure out a way to integrate the ancient wisdom uh, with the modern science and along the way kind of discovered functional medicine, took my first course in that and basically kept hearing Ayurvedic wisdom being restated in a modern scientific way and thought this is a great marriage of the two. 
and that's when I ended up opening up my practice here in Santa Fe uh, as an integrative practice. What a journey. Yeah. So what do you believe is the biggest difference between the way conventional primary care medicine is practiced today and for a patient coming to see you instead that practices more of an integrated holistic approach? Well, I mean, the, so there's practical differences and then there's um, maybe more uh, spiritual differences, if you will. Obviously, the practical differences are that uh, your typical primary care physician uh, is constrained uh, both by the uh, structure of Western medicine as it's practiced in the primary care setting and constrained by the structure of the practice setting. Uh, so both the medicine and the delivery setting are both uh, constrictive and that that physician or nurse practitioner physician's assistant has to follow sort of an algorithmic uh, evidence-based ideally, although we can talk about how not evidence-based a lot of what is done is, but they, they are trying to follow algorithmic standard of care medicine and they're doing this under uh, the, the constraints of of you know, a business model, basically. Uh, and that that's true of whether they work in a federally qualified health center, a, a, a large, uh, you know, managed care uh, clinic or private practice. Uh, there are there's there's financial constraints and we all have to follow coding and billing rules and coding and billing rules actually uh, at, probably more than most patients realize guide the way the care goes. And it's a reductionist uh, system because you're basically trying to make somebody look like a set of potentially unrelated uh, symptoms and diagnoses uh, to justify the medical complexity that allows you to get paid. Mm -hmm. So right there, the system actually feeds back to the fact that Western medicine is reductionist science in and of itself. And the main difference between that and a system such as Ayurveda is that Ayurveda is a consciousness-based system. And it takes into account the consciousness of more than just the individual, but the entire universe and how uh, this consciousness, uh, this this universal consciousness uh, was distilled into the individual uh, person. Uh, and it therefore sort of opens the playing field to be able to uh, introduce concepts of spirituality, love, uh, holistic uh, healing, understanding, community, all these things that, uh, unfortunately there's just really not time nor money structure for in the traditional Western approach. So what are some of the top illnesses that you deal with that you see and, and what have you been most successful at treating holistically? Yeah, well, I think, uh, this could be said of pretty much any primary care doctor working in our culture that most of the things we see the most often are our lifestyle related conditions uh, that are manifesting as physical symptomatology or disease patterns. Uh, the top being, you know, gut and gastrointestinal health issues, uh, anxiety and depression, uh, as well as um, fatigue uh, issues of autoimmunity, uh, which is uh, on the rise. Uh, and then brain function issues of, of brain, higher cognitive function, including uh, ultimately a lot of uh, dementia and mm -hmm. neurologic diseases. Mm -hmm. Let's start with gut, because I think yeah. gut universally is a problem. It's exploded. Why do you think 
we are seeing such an explosive growth in gut issues, by the way, especially in teens. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, there's a few things here. So one, uh, and, and I think of a lot in terms of detoxification, because I teach classes on detoxification. Uh, you have issues with inputs, you have issues with the, uh, the, the machinery, uh, and then you have issues with outputs. So just like in any factory, uh, if the factory is going to keep up in producing the product, they need adequate input of raw materials, but and, and a minimal input of uh, of toxicity, and then well functioning machinery, and then adequate outputs to create the finished product. And we do the same thing uh, in in our gut, uh, where we take in uh, food and and beverage, and and we have to process it uh, within our machinery. Uh, and then we have to excrete what is not uh, beneficial to us and what is toxic. And this is true to some extent as well with our emotions and mm -hmm. our thoughts that we have our sense organs that take in sights and sounds and smells and experiences. And we have to be able to process them and we have to be able to sort of move them through so that they don't build up and create toxicity. And so, you know, why are we having so many gut problems? Well, one is, of course, the inputs are toxic, our food is not real anymore. Uh, not only the what of, of what uh, of eating, but I talk a lot about the where, when, how, and why of eating. Ayurveda has massive amounts of wisdom on, you know, what to eat, but also how to eat it, when to eat it, why to eat it. Um, and then also, you know, trying to clean up our detoxification systems, uh, which are also overburdened by toxicity from environmental chemicals, from, uh, allergens, uh, and then helping our outputs uh, in that we need to poop and pee and sweat and breathe uh, the way we release toxins. Uh, so that's a huge issue in terms of just the 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 in the, and the out and the machinery that processes, but also uh, because of an incredible connection between the gut and the brain, uh, which we're discovering more and more about all the time, uh, the enteric uh, nervous system found in the gut, the uh, mm -hmm. presence of the immune system, which is concentrated in the gut, and even more interesting things that are just coming out about the lymphatic system uh, that goes all the way up into the brain and even the vagus nerve, which connects the brain uh, and the nervous system down to the gut and how things may actually be moving straight from the gut up to the brain through the vagus nerve. Uh, we, there's, uh, you know, that means it goes both ways. So if we're overwhelmed in our nervous system due to stress and anxiety uh, and depression, uh, and, uh, un, uh, you know, demands that are placed on us, uh, that are, that are impossible to achieve, uh, then it's going to go translate down to the gut and we're going to have, uh, you know, changes in our gut ecosystem and microbiome, uh, that then go and implicate and are implicated in all kinds of other organ, uh, dysfunction. And as you know, Rena, I mean, fascinatingly, Ayurveda has been speaking about the central role of the gut, uh, in its, you know, for its 5,000 or more year tradition. And when we do detoxification uh, treatments, uh, the classic ones uh, known as the Panchakarma detoxifications, they all involve uh, moving disease uh, uh, first into the gut uh, from the peripheral tissues and then out of the gut through techniques such as purgation uh, and induced vomiting and uh, enemas. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, when I hear all these new things uh, being learned about gut and how it's so such a hot topic and so central to health, I 
just sort of chuckle and think that Ayurveda was way ahead uh, in its knowledge of, of, of using the gut as a healing uh, portal. So true. So the question always is, well, when the whole gut's a mess, what's the first thing to prioritize? So how do you do you first fix the input, the output or the detox? Um, well, yeah. no, I mean, you, you can fix everything through, you know, a program that addresses all three of those elements. But also we have to remember there's an ideal treatment protocol. Um, and then there's the reality of what right. people can achieve. Uh, and, and if we're not being sensitive to what's doable by the client or the patient, then we're not necessarily uh, helping them. Uh, and so you know, I think that that reducing the toxic inputs is is probably uh, the easiest place to start because uh, it generally doesn't take up much time in the patient's life. Uh, it may cost a little bit more money because uh, healthier food and avoiding toxic foodstuffs is uh, sometimes a little bit more expensive. It doesn't have to be extremely more expensive, but uh, removing toxic inputs. So not it's not what you know, instead of do this, do that, just don't do this and don't do that. What would be your top five don'ts for it? Uh, okay. Well, interestingly, um, they wouldn't all be don't eat this. Uh, some of them would actually be uh, more of the when, where, how, and why of eating. Um, and so I try to get people to uh, eat uh, fewer meals. Okay. Um, I try to get, mm-hmm. well, What's it depends. Meals? Oh, well, okay. If, so if you had to just say one, okay, two to three would be the broad okay. answer to that. Uh, vata types will want to eat more, possibly three and even a snack. Kapha types uh, it can get away with two meals, one meal even. The Ayurvedic wisdom says that kaphas can eat once a day and pitta is somewhere in between. Um, so fewer meals so that the meals are spaced out so that the hunger is actually building prior to eating. Uh, because remember that when you eat, you move your body into the parasympathetic nervous system, the rest and digest. Whereas when you're trying to do your regular day-to-day life, whether it's uh, mental focus uh, because you have a desk job or whether it's uh, physical uh, activity because you have a more active job or active lifestyle, uh, you still need – that's more moving in the direction of sympathetic, which is the fight, flight, or freeze. Uh, and so if you keep eating throughout the day, frequent small meals, you keep asking your body to shift over into digest, absorb, and assimilate mode, uh, and then it detracts from you know, sending blood flow to the muscles so you can you know, do your physical labor or your, or your gardening or your – sports or whatnot. And also it takes away from higher cognitive functioning because you don't really need to be doing complex math when you're trying to to digest a meal. So fewer meals, um, paying attention to hunger uh, so that you don't eat when you're not hungry. Um, And also generally for people, uh, it's eating um, a lighter earlier dinner, uh, which ideally is matched with a bigger uh, midday meal. Uh, if possible, based on their lifestyle. Um, so that's a, a, a schedule thing. Uh, that's mm-hmm. not a take this out of your diet. It's to do this. And then I also try to get people um, to move. Uh, a lot of folks eat a fairly carb-heavy breakfast, uh, and including refined carbs. So you know the standard American breakfast may include everything from toast and jam, uh, coffee and milk, cereal and milk. Um, orange juice, 
uh, a muffin, a bagel. Okay, all these things are high in refined carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. And they require your body, therefore, to release insulin uh, to move the blood sugar from the blood into the cell. Uh, whereas when you wake up in the morning, your cortisol actually is at its peak because cortisol helps you get going and get on with your day. And insulin cortisol are like a seesaw. And you want to support one and sort of repress the other. Whereas if you eat a big carb-heavy breakfast, you're actually asking for insulin release at the time when cortisol is up. And so the two can kind of compete with each other and the body can get confused. Uh, rather move to a heavier protein and a healthy fat breakfast. And if you're going to do more refined carbs like pastas and breads, move them to later in the day when it's okay that your insulin goes up somewhat. Uh, and then you get you get into rest and digest, you get sleepy and you go to bed, which is what our ancestors used to do. They didn't stay up till midnight because they didn't have light and computers and all that. So um, there's a shift in the macronutrient ratios to match the circadian rhythms of the day. And then there's also, like I said, um, a reduction in the number of meals uh, so that we can properly digest in between. Uh, now, if I had to say take out these top foods, I mean, clearly anything artificial, uh, artificial colorings, artificial additives, uh, preservatives, things that are frankenfoods, and many of us have heard, if you don't know what the ingredient is on the label, you probably don't want to be buying that food product. Um, so there's that. And then I also um, think that, you know, removing uh, seed oils uh, is, is important. Uh, most of the seed oils like sunflower, safflower, corn, canola, um, they are uh, rancid, potentially rancid by the time we even get them off the shelf. Uh, and they were not traditionally eaten as nutrition. Uh, and so uh, clearly um, not just removing hydrogenated oils and uh, and trans fats, which are you kind of man man-made uh, types of fat uh, fats which are given you know put in foodstuffs to preserve them so that they don't spoil but also kind of minimizing the seed oils that you eat um, because these were not traditionally used for nutrition uh, unless you're sourcing them extremely clean uh, and so that you're not worried about uh, rancidity and I got to look at what people are eating. I mean, if they're eating liquid sugars, I get rid of those right away. Okay. I mean, sodas, uh, uh, Arizona iced tea, uh, you know, all these beverages that may sound healthy if you don't actually look at the fact that they've added sugar to them. Um, fruit juices can be, you know, too much sugar for people. Uh, that that then is a burden on the uh, on the endocrine system that you have to actually figure out what to do with that sugar load uh, when it gets into your bloodstream. Uh, so refine, you know, that's, uh, I call them added sugars to some extent. Um, so if it's not naturally occurring in the, in the food product, in the, in the food, uh, then it's an added sugar and it hides under some 50 names, uh, that you have to kind of learn, uh, because it's not just going to say sugar on a label. It might say fructose or high fructose corn syrup or maltose or corn syrup solids or, uh, you know, and, and you got, you got to kind of be a detective in figuring out what's what it what's in there and and it hides i mean they add sugar to all kinds of things ketchup salad dressings yeah. sauces and if you go out to eat and and you're getting a you know some sort of uh, food that has a sauce on and it tastes good i'll say <laughs> you yeah. it probably has sugar in it it probably has added sugar and so yeah you know, 
those are two of the big ones in terms of what I try to get people to eliminate are, are added sugars uh, and then and then flour if, is the next level, uh, refined carbs that have been stripped of their nutrition, uh, and, and then seed oils. Uh. So what – quick follow-up questions. First one, you mentioned don't eat too late. What's the latest that you recommend typically someone finish their dinner by? Yeah, I mean, it gets it depends on whether you know is there are this are they healthy and trying to get more healthy, what I call the well getting weller, uh, or are they are they imbalanced and have disease process going on? If mm -hmm. they're if they're disease if they have disease they're trying to work with or they're overweight or they have you know heartburn or acid reflux or indigestion, bloating, gas, um, abdominal pain, then I basically try to get them to eat. Uh, and finish uh, even uh, potentially an hour to two before sunset, uh, which in the winter is challenging because uh, it, at least at where we live, it gets dark in the winter at you know five five thirty, um, and so that doesn't always work well with people's uh, work schedule. Um, you know, you can do get away with it a little later in the in the summer months because again, the circadian rhythms of your body are dictated by the light and dark cycles. Um, but certainly I would say in comparison to the bedtime, you, if you have issues, you probably want to be done eating at least two and a half hours before bed. Okay. Um, that makes sense. And, and, and even if you can't move the dinner time up too much, just eat a lighter dinner. You want to go to bed hungry. Oh, interesting. Okay. If you're not hungry when you're getting ready for bed, then you ate too much too late. But we all kind of get in this hat, well, not all of us, but a lot of us get in this habit of, uh, well, there's dinner and then there's, I didn't really feel, so and then there's a snack, snack. there's right. dessert, a bedtime snack. I mean, sure, there are unique circumstances where I will have somebody eat a protein snack closer to bed, and that's often with there's diabetic issues where they're making too much, uh, they're kicking out blood sugar from the liver in the middle of the night because they didn't have enough in the bloodstream to fuel them through the night or if somebody has insomnia and they're waking up at three in the morning occasionally that's from a relative dip in blood sugar that could be mitigated by a small protein snack closer to bed but for the most part um, you want to go to bed hungry and um, i personally know that i suffer from this challenge being having busy work day and i'm also an intermittent faster so i don't eat breakfast i, I intermittently fast between about 8 p.m and and noon or one the next day. But I get, if I don't get a good lunch in, I'm sort of behind the caloric curve and then I'm trying to catch up. And so I do this thing where I get home and I snack while, you know, I'm helping my wife with dinner. And then I, you know, I, I don't get enough dinner because I was behind the curve and then I'm like continually eating and wanting to eat until 9 PM. And, but then I'm not hungry when I go to bed. So I need to sort of reflect and shift the behavior, what we call in yoga, pose and repose. Mm -hmm. uh, so you assess and then you say, tomorrow, uh, I, I, pro I need to eat less for dinner because I wasn't hungry last night when I went to bed. Got it. Got it. Now, that's clearly very smart to think about living according to the circadian rhythm and, and really Absolutely. eating and managing your diet based on when the sun sets, which is very hard to do in real life. But uh, it is. A great philosophy to follow. So, so let's talk about, so that's inputs. Let's talk about vegetarianism in the input before we move to detox and output. So there's there's been some controversy around 
should everyone be a vegetarian, veganism versus eating some protein? Where do you come out on that? Okay. Um, well, I come out on – so obviously uh, putting the ethical uh, and moral considerations aside for a moment and just thinking about nutrition and health um, or shall I say health of the individual. Um, so things like veganism are not natural. Uh, they they are not – they've never been tested over long periods of time. I mean granted, sure, we have people that have been vegan for 40 years. Uh, but we don't have large base, large population-based studies on the long-term population-based outcomes of something like veganism. Nor do we have it for something like a paleo – what's called a modern paleo-style diet, a much higher in fat uh, and, and potentially protein but not always in a low-carb diet. We don't have long-term data – uh, in populations that have done this because we can't find people that are 80 years old that have been eating this way for 60 years of their life. Furthermore, veganism and vegetarianism never evolved naturally in any culture. The closest thing to vegetarianism culturally is Hinduism mm -hmm. and the reason that they don't eat animal products uh, with the exception of, uh, you know, like cows products is, is for spiritual and ethical reasons. Um, so we evolved into humans uh, because of eating animal products that allowed us to survive on um, with a shorter gut and it allowed us to fuel an ever-growing frontal brain uh, which is the part of the brain that allows us to do higher functioning like language and math and the the way we were driven from our uh, pre-homo sapien ancestors towards uh, our current uh, human uh, physiology uh, was through introducing animal products. So I think that it is, if you want to argue what's a natural diet, a natural diet does include animal products. Uh, but there are, there also have been, um, you know, cultures, uh, cultural, if you look at diets according to geography and according to cultures and ancestry, we certainly have um, certain diets that are super high in animal products and fat take say the Inuits in Northern North America. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you have cultures that have much lower fat diets, like people living on the plains in Africa. Um, and so there's obviously different diets with different macronutrient proportions and different proportions of animal versus plant products can all be healthy. And, and I would say we don't have a lot of data, for example, that says that veganism from a micronutrient perspective is dangerous. I mean, really, if you look at the literature closely on veganism, you're not really risking macronutrient deficiencies with the exception of possibly vitamin D and vitamin B, B12. Uh, but we just don't have the long-term data to say like, is this, is this a healthy, what's this gonna do to, 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 to bone health later in life? What's this gonna do to dental health later in life? Okay, let's talk detox. Well, I think it's always, uh, a worthwhile uh, treatment to go on a, a some sort of elimination diet. Um, you know, we have classic elimination diets in the functional medicine world that tend to take out uh, a set of foods that are tip that are. If you look at a population that are that are the top uh, foods to which people have sensitivity or true food allergies, as well as taking out foods that are not nutritive, uh, foods that have uh, you know qualities that may be um, unhealthy, such as too much stimulants like caffeine, uh, or chocolate, uh, as well as, uh, alcohol. Uh, and so, a, a, an elimination diet is a, is a good exercise 
for people uh, to sort of clean up the diet for a period of time. I like people to do it for at least three weeks. Uh, I think you need that amount of time to really uh, to really let the system kind of uh, relax uh, from from potentially toxic inputs. Uh, and then you want to support the detoxification mechanisms. Um, in the body, which interestingly, if you actually look at the biochemistry of how we detoxify, do rely on a fair number of compounds, most of which can be obtained from phytonutrients, from vegetables, uh, as well as uh, amino acids that are necessary for detoxification. So, uh, you know, adequate levels of healthy protein uh, are, are important for, for proper detoxification. This means not doing uh, prolonged uh depletion type type cleanses like uh, water fasting or juice cleansing or the master cleanse. I mean, these things, they just don't ha make sense from a, a biochemical detoxification standpoint. Um, oh, and, and so, yeah, I mean, they don't because they're depleting. Um, and, uh, and, and so when you look at depleting for those, who well, they're depleting in the sense that they, they, reduce the, the nutrients that are taken in, uh, both macro and micro, mm -hmm. uh, more so macro, like if you take a juice cleanse, I mean, you're going to get a fair amount of micronutrients if you do a variety of plants and vegetable, uh, fruits and vegetables, but you're actually going to be probably, um, to deplete in, in amino acids, so which are the building blocks of proteins that are required, especially for phase two detoxification in the liver, gotcha. uh, which is where most of our detox occurs, although it occurs in every cell in the body. Um, and so if you really look at the science, like to support a detox, you're going to want to, um, you're going to want to take in, you know, adequate amounts of, of protein. Um, now, People say, well, what about an Ayurveda when I go for punch karma and they basically give me a bunch of medicated ghee and then I can't eat anything for days and then they build my back up starting with rice water. And I know when I did punch karma in India for 21 days, I lost I lost 12 pounds. Yeah. Um, that's a kind of a different theory. Uh, and also you have to remember that there are people that are not candidates for punch karma. Mm -hmm. They're too weak. Uh, they're too depleted already and they would not be fit to go through Panchakarma. So there is a depletion aspect uh, to Panchakarma, uh, but uh, outside of using Panchakarma, which is also often uh, traditionally only done for people that had you know, a significant uh, disease state or a significant imbalance of their constitution, whereas regular people uh, who are relatively healthy uh, would just follow seasonal eating patterns and they would you know, do uh, what are called uh, lightning therapies and building therapies, Langana and, and Brimhana. Uh, and, and these would not necessarily involve the intense uh, detoxification protocols like in Panchakarma. So we have to remember that um, although we may feel like, you know, taking a bunch of things out and going on some sort of fairly extreme diet for a period of time uh, may make us feel like we're cleansing, uh, it actually could be damaging to your system because you're depleting too much just at the time when you're actually trying to detoxify better. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. So yeah. then back to, you said, so one critical thing is elimination diet. I'm assuming that means sort of gluten, dairy, yeah. you mentioned alcohol already. Exactly. Okay. So the big ones are, are the ones that, um, 
you know, and so it's 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 things that tend to that a lot of people have sensitivities to or true allergies and that often keep bad company. Um, and so, you know, when I run people through an elimination diet, I take out, like you mentioned, gluten, dairy, soy, corn, mm-hmm. uh, nightshades, shellfish, citrus, caffeine, alcohol. And then I also try to get them to really watch out for seed oils and take in very minimal uh, added sugars. I don't 100% eliminate added sugars, but very small amounts of things like honey and maple syrup. Uh, okay. Just because, again, Ayurveda, remember, speaks about six tastes, yeah. of which sweet is one, and that it's not completely evil. Uh, it just has to be taken in 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 context and in balance. So much Pooping. constipation or a diarrhea. Yeah. Absolutely. More constipation than diarrhea. Um, well, okay. I, so I think it's important, um, ideally prior to the detoxification, prior to doing, um, to doing the concentrated detoxification. Uh, and I will say, you know, just to, to, to back up just one bit here. Um, I do think there's a value to doing these types of detoxes, but there isn't Western science to back me up on this. Okay, so I'm not going to stand here and say that there's all this evidence that people, uh, if they do a spring uh, detox or cleanse, uh, that that you know that there's all this evidence that they're going to live longer. But um, so just that as an aside. But output. So I try to get them to poop at least once a day prior to initiating the program. And there's a variety of ways that that can be done. And classically in Ayurveda, we use a lot of oleation or oiling of the gut uh, to help uh, not only. Um, with bowel movements, but also to pull the, the doshas, which you could might call, uh, you know, excess, uh, mm-hmm. or, and the ama, the concept of ama, that's AMA, mm-hmm. um, to pull it into the GI tract. But, you know, there's all kinds of mild, uh, laxatives and, and things that people can use. So triphala is a classic Ayurvedic remedy, it has three uh, herbs in one, uh, one of which is a purgative, that's the haritaki. Uh, aloe can help move the bowels. Uh, certainly adequate hydration, adequate fiber, exercise, um, and um, and also stress reduction because a lot of constipation is due to anxiety, uh, as, as can be loose stools as well, um, what Western medicine just throws in this category of irritable bowel syndrome. Um, and then, you know, rhubarb can work, uh, as well, in, including in the elderly population, uh, where you don't want to, you got to be a little bit careful about some of the harsher laxatives. Um, and then, so once you get pooping, uh, you then also want to do, um, you know, you want to be urinating properly and supporting the kidney function. So hydrating adequately, not drinking too much fluids with the meal because that violates an Ayurvedic principle, but between the meals, making sure you're adequately hydrated, especially. Uh, and then some, like I said, sweating therapies like the detox baths, uh, as well as breath. Remember, we exhale toxins through not just carbon dioxide, but we also exhale toxicity in our breathing. And so teaching people to do basic breath techniques uh, like pranayama uh, from the yogic and Ayurvedic traditions uh, are important as well and have many other benefits. That okay. So starting with, um, SIBO. Okay. We can start with SIBO. Um, SIBO, it, this is, a uh, one of, uh, two gut, uh, conditions that I think is, uh, over diagnosed and over popularized. The other being leaky gut, which of course we have 
no hard evidence yet that it really even exists, but I think it explains a variety of conditions under one name. Um, SIBO, we learned about uh, in really in the surgical literature, uh, especially after somebody has had uh, a portion of their gut removed or altered, uh, and there was uh, therefore a change in the anatomy and in the in the mechanics of the gut and you allowed uh, sort of a reflux or a movement upward of bacteria that generally live in the uh, upper large intestine uh, refluxing into the lower small intestine. Um, it stands for small intestinal bacteria or bacterial overgrowth. Uh, so likewise, just like you don't want the bacteria in your colon to, to be predominant in your mouth or in your urinary tract, you don't want them pushing up into the small intestine. Um, because they will create, um, their properties are different. They'll create, uh, gases that you don't want to have to deal with in the small intestine. And, and, uh, and then these can be detected through breath tests. Uh, so SIBO is a tough thing to treat. Uh, I think that, um, you know, the, the standard approach is, is we'll kill off some of those bacteria. Um, just like if you had a, you know, a dirty, uh, bathroom, you would just pour bleach on everything. Uh, but the problem is, is when you take away the uh, antibiotic, if you will, they, it tends to recur. Um, and so you've got to also help keep things moving in, a, in the right direction. Uh, so the peristalsis in the gut that occurs that Ayurveda beautifully described as a panavayu, the downward moving wind, uh, needs to be supported through, uh, I generally will use um, Pro, pro motility uh, herbs uh, that help move things along, ginger being one of the best for that. Uh, and then also um, mechanical uh, uh, treatments such as visceral massage from a good body worker uh, in case there's um, valves that are getting stuck. Uh, and also, if you know, the, the intestines can move around quite a lot in our abdomen, and if they get kinked or shifted, that can also be helped by a visceral massage therapist. So SIBO is a tough one to treat, I have to, I have to say, and, um, um, and I think that uh, it's, but I also think it's kind of overdiagnosed. Um, Crohn's uh, disease is a, uh, you know, one of the two main uh, inflammatory bowel diseases, along with ulcerative colitis. Uh, these are, uh, you know, these are somewhat serious conditions uh, because they can have both. Um, symptomatic effects where, you know, there's a lot of pain and bloody uh, bowel movements and diarrhea, but also uh, they can be, uh, they're a risk factor uh, for cancers of the, of the gut as well. And so it's important uh, for anyone with colitis to be under the care of a qualified medical professional. Uh, but uh, because inflammation is a big component uh, of it, I tend to use uh, very strict anti-inflammatory style diets, much of which we've already talked about under a different name. So avoiding seed oils, refined carbohydrates, and a lot of the foods that may create inflammation. Um, and, and using, you know, fair amounts of, you know, phytonutrients in the forms of, uh, vegetables and, and fruits. And then I'll use certain, um, gut healing compounds and anti-inflammatory gut herbs, uh, from boswellia to turmeric uh, to glutamine uh, and other like medical foods that are you know combinations of gut healing compounds and herbs just kind of combined into one 
powder that people can use. Um, fish oils also have some evidence for helping colitis, so the omega-3 fats, uh, which are quite anti-inflammatory. Um, and then uh, I will usually try to put people on high-dose probiotics, uh, mostly because I have anecdotal evidence that they help, not because I've seen uh, too much in terms of larger studies on them for, for these conditions. But there is even prescription strength uh, probiotics that are super high colony counts that I'll try to get people on. Stress reduction is also really important in, in inflammatory bowel disease um, because people will certainly tell me that they flare up when they're under higher levels of stress. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And so that's a great disease for uh, lifestyle management. I mean, uh, great evidence there. Of course, the gut microbiome is is a huge topic now. Right. Um, uh, just to remind listeners that our guts are really only 10% human cells. Uh, they're 90% non-human organisms, the majority of which are bacteria, but also viruses and parasites and, and yeast uh, live in the gut. And so they uh, that ecosystem has a kind of a brain of its own that actually will communicate with uh, other organs in our body and other systems in our body and, and, and dictate. I mean, we now have evidence that the gut microbiome tells our brain things. Um, and so uh, a lot of it could be just uh, shifts in the gut microbiome uh, that are that are create that are sort of uh, allowing inflammation to to be uh, upregulated. Uh, but then you it's a question of the chicken and the egg. Like, is it the gut microbiome that's driving it? Or did we do it to the gut microbiome based on what we, you know, put into our bodies or the fact that a good microbiome was not established in childhood right. due to a number of things, which GMOs could be part of that and antibiotics and cesarean births and a whole host of things, um, lack of breastfeeding, et cetera. What have you seen and how do you treat anxiety and depression? Yeah. Um, so certainly it, it, it never hurts, uh, with, with, with anxiety and depression to improve the, uh, other organ function. So treating gut dysfunction, treating, um, inflammation, uh, and then also neurotoxicity is something that I'm interested in as a, uh, as a trigger or, or a uh, con confounding variable in, in anxiety and depression. So uh, there are a lot of things that are toxic to the brain, uh, both uh, external toxins that we've already talked about and also even just bacterial endotoxins that uh, certain types of bacterial ma bacteria make that then can go up into the brain. And so part of how we detoxify um, things that can end up crossing the blood-brain barrier is through normal detoxification pathways in the liver and then the creation of good healthy bile uh, that flows from the liver into the small intestine and then binds toxins and carries them out through the stool through, through bowel movements. Um, and so supporting bile flow uh, with certain uh, compounds and herbs uh, can also actually help uh, reduce neurotoxicity and then help anxiety and depression. But also while we're doing like that functional medicine type approach, it's so, so, so important for people, I think, to have some sort of meditative practice, um, 
you know, you probably uh, interviewing a lot of people for the podcast, for videos on your site, et cetera. Um, you talk to a lot of practitioners and I talked to a lot of practitioners on my podcast and, and uh, when I did the Ayurveda summit and just time and time again, practitioners are talking about the benefits of meditative practices uh, as, and, and it, d it doesn't have to be hard. It doesn't have to mean that you're identifying with some other culture or religion or spirituality. Um, meditation can come in many forms, uh, and it's very simple. Uh, and if, if we still have time, I can talk real briefly about sure. just basic components of meditation. So a lot of people are familiar with, uh, the worker Herbert Benson, who was a Harvard MD, uh, who wrote a book called The Relaxation Response that I believe came out in the early 70s, uh, maybe even the late 60s. And they went ahead and studied a bunch of cultures who uh, engage in meditative practices, uh, whether it was uh, Asians that sat for formal meditation or whether it was uh, people all over the world uh, who were Christians that uh, prayed or Muslims who prayed. Uh, they wanted to look at what were... Uh, parallel concepts among the different uh, cultures, meditative practices or prayer practices. And they kind of distilled it down into really that you only need four things to start meditating. You need a quiet space uh, because that minimizes distraction. You need to be in a comfortable position. Uh, and if you look at the yoga teachings of, uh, you know, just to remember that yoga asana, yoga posturing is really designed only to prepare the body to sit for meditation and then meditation to sit for, or shall I say to sit for breath work, pranayama, and then meditation. So you got to make sure that when you're meditating, you're comfortable. And if that means laying down with your head on a pillow, that's okay. You don't have to be seated in some, you know, lotus pose, uh, to be able to meditate. So, uh, quiet environment, comfortable position, uh, you can do this walking meditation while you're hiking in the woods, uh, while you're walking to work, while you're driving even, as long as you pay enough attention to the road. Um, number three is you need to have some focus, some repetitive focus. So it's either the breath, focusing on the slow, steady inhalation and the slow, steady exhalation, or it can be some phrase that's being repeated over and over in your head either a mantra, a prayer, or if people don't have anything they can identify with there, I just say, try all is good. Just mm. repeat that. All is good. All is good. All is good. Or you know, maybe you're saying like, if you have self-esteem, I am beautiful or I am beautiful, something like that. So you repeat that. And then the fourth thing is you don't judge yourself. So you don't judge the outcome and you don't judge the process. So I tell people, you know, when I sit to meditate, because I'm a pitta guy, I got a busy brain that's always going, I start thinking about my grocery list. <laughs> so what I tell people is, that's okay. It would be think, <laughs> yes, think about the grocery list. Just don't plan the grocery shopping. It, you, you know, in other words, pretend that you're outside of yourself watching your thought process and just sort of with a, with a quizzical uh, – nature just say, well, okay, so the grocery list came into my head. Let me let it wash over me like a wave of, of ocean wave. And then I'll wait for the next wave mm -hmm. going back to the breath, going back to the mantra, going back to the prayer. And then you think about, uh, that, uh, you know, that, that you left your, uh, computer on, you wanted to shut it down. Okay. That's fine. 
just let that pass over. You don't think, okay, I'm going to do that immediately after I get up or, or tomorrow morning, I'm going to do that this time. Just observe the thoughts waving, washing over you. And, and that, and that's all you need to do. If you have those four ingredients, they found that that, that actually was created the relaxation response. It lowered blood pressure. It improved heart rate variability. And it's just anybody who's not trying to do a meditative practice who has an anxiety disorder or depressive disorder, uh, or for that matter, just about any ailment, uh, is missing out on something that's uh, free, uh, easy, and uh, and powerful. I have a membership-based medical practice, uh, which means people pay me a small monthly fee to be my patient, uh, and I do member uh, member lectures and Q and A's uh, every two months. Uh, I get my, you know, invite all my members and I do a talk and I just did one on brain health uh, last or earlier this month. Um, and it's, it's a, it's a, there's not really a short answer, but, um, there's a variety of things that I, that I put into place for people. That's like a brain healing protocol. Um, and some of the, probably the, the most powerful things are again, meditative practices. Number two, learning new things. Okay. Mm -hmm. So uh, people have heard about, oh, well, if I just do crossword puzzles, you know, I'll exercise my brain. And I see a lot of older patients in the hospital. I go in and, oh, they're doing their crossword puzzle. Yeah, I'm trying to prevent de dementia. Well, doing a crossword puzzle is actually recalling, trying to recall things that you already know. That's mm -hmm. not as potent as learning something new. So a new language, getting into, an, you know, making a new friend and, and figuring out that person and how to get along with them, um, taking on a new task learning a new hobby. Uh, if you're not somebody, if you're somebody like me, who's a kind of a white collar guy, like go learn how to do uh, woodworking, uh, you know, because you're using new, you're creating new neuronal connections in your brain, new skills and new techniques, um, that you didn't have refined before. And that actually is going to be quite protective. Uh, I do like fish oils for brain health. Uh, they're highly anti-inflammatory, medium chain triglycerides like coconut oil cross the blood brain barrier easily. There's some nervine tonics that we use in Ayurveda like ashwagandha and bacopa mm -hmm. um, that are, you know, have some evidence for, for brain function. The detox is again important to prevent neurotoxins from building up in the brain. Uh, and then one test that if you want the information uh, is called the APOE gene. Uh, because the people with uh, APOE type 4 are at much greater risk of Alzheimer's disease. And some people want to know this information, some people don't. So uh, consider what you're going to do with the information if right. you ask your doctor to order that test. Um, right. But right. it greatly increases your chance of Alzheimer's and, and it might motivate you to actually do some of these things that uh, have been proven to uh, – to prevent and slow the progression of dementia. How is your practice set up? What do you mean by monthly subscription? How does it work? Insurance? Yeah. yeah so, okay. So basically, um, people, uh, my patients pay me a small monthly fee, uh, which is they're pay, they're paying for, uh, an enhanced experience, uh, in that, uh, I have a small practice, I have longer visits with my patients than than is typical in primary care. Well, much longer. Um, and then also I provide uh, membership meetings, uh, 
about six times a year with a lecture, like I mentioned. Uh, I provide them access to me 24 hours a day with my cell phone number, as well as a secure patient portal so that we can do like email messaging back and forth. Um, and, uh, and, and that, and that is what's covered by the, the monthly fee. Also we'll do things like teach them meditation and, and review their diet and supplements. The regular medical care, uh, is still covered by the patient's insurance. Um, and I still bill the insurance for the visits, whether it be Medicare, commercial insurance. And then I also have patients on, uh, I have a subset of patients on a that are part of what's called a medical cost sharing community, which is an alternative to health insurance, uh, where again you pay a monthly fee to the medical cost sharing community. The money's all pooled, uh, and then it's used when the when somebody in that community needs services. But they work with me on again on a membership base. But that medical cost sharing community will actually subsidize their membership with me because I am in partnership with them as a premier practice, um, and so. They're basically getting what I call slow medicine or a term that I like to use called meaningful medicine. Mm -hmm. uh, and and so many of my patients after I did this uh, change in my practice model said, this feels like the way it used to feel when I was younger or I was a kid and my family doctor used to, you know, know me, know my family. And then I have, you know, I have a comprehensive level membership. It's a little more expensive, but I also will do home visits with that too. So I have a set of people that are fairly uh, confined to their home that I will see at home as well. That's great. I also take care of my patients when they are hospitalized because okay. I still do hospital medicine as well. And are you available for telemedicine? So if you've got folks out in California that are interested in you, is that something you offer? Yeah. As well? So I can do Ayurveda over telemedicine. Um, due to telemedicine laws, I cannot practice Western medicine via telemedicine. Um, they would have to come see me at least once a year in person, but I can do uh, in integrative Ayurveda consults over Skype and phone, and I do, I do do that on a routine basis. Uh, and then often with that, I can educate them on how to navigate uh, getting tests and whatnot through their local physician. Got it, got it. That makes a lot of sense. This has been incredible, Dr. Grasser. You you are doing something amazing in terms of bringing the holistic practices, the ancient traditions, functional medicine into your practice. I really do believe that you're pioneering and one of the, the doctors at the forefront of what I hope will become the future of uh, primary care uh, medicine in, in our country at least. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Rena. That's a wrap. Share your love with a five-star review and get show notes at healthbootcamps.com. Connect with us on Health Bootcamps Facebook and Twitter. Also, don't forget to check out other great interviews and subscribe to the Get Healthier podcast today.